We just set the machines up. Okay, we're ready to roll. Watch it. Hey, knucklehead. It's time for American Knucklehead, an average Joe's take on the state of the nation. I hate to say this, but this place is getting to me. I think I'm getting the fear. Nonsense. We came here to find the American dream. Now that we're right in the vortex, she want to quit? You must realize, man, we found the main nerve. That's what gives me the fear. 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 Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the American Knucklehead Podcast. I am your host, Crawford Smith, and I thank you for listening. It has been a damned long time since I talked at you, friends and neighbors. I posted a couple of rants to the website over the last year or so, but this is the first time in quite a while that I've felt compelled to open up the mic. This podcast is being recorded on May 11th, 2020. Things are very, very strange right now, and they continue to change quickly. One thing's for certain, we are a long way off from what used to pass for normal or even from some sense of equilibrium, which might temporarily pass as the so-called new normal. I have to admit that even though I've been somewhat settled into a new routine, it does not seem to me in any way to be a new normal. Every day, I continue to grapple with the fear. I think I'm getting the fear. For me, the fear arrived the last week of March. A string of very fearful things happened to me in a very short time. First, I decided to purchase a shotgun for home protection. Now, I'm not a frothing-at-the-mouth gun wanker. I do, however, think that this country is long overdue for some serious gun safety reforms. I support common-sense gun safety, but, you know, not the repeal of the Second Amendment. But things were getting hairy. I decided I needed some home protection. Now, I have in my life owned guns. I've enjoyed shooting them. And up until a couple of weeks ago, I really had no interest in owning one again. It just wasn't on my radar. Then, in mid-March, when things really started to get weird, I started giving it some thought. First, there were news reports that the Portland police would stop responding to certain types of calls, although the specifics of what they would and would not respond to weren't really mentioned. That was about to become somewhat clearer to me soon. The thing that really pushed me over the margin was when a car right down the street was abandoned and partially stripped. You know, just in broad daylight. It seemed like our neighborhood had become a dumping ground for car thieves. In fact, there's a truck sitting right in front of the house, and it had been there for months, clearly abandoned, probably stolen. But when somebody stripped that V-dub down the street in broad daylight, I figured I wasn't going to be able to count on the police to protect my property, and I decided to get a shotgun for home protection. So I went down to the neighborhood gun store, and I picked out a decent-looking used 12-gauge, and I filled out the background check paper and paid my $10 fee. Then I went off in search of shotgun ammo, which at the time was as scarce as toilet paper. Now, the next evening was a Friday, and I was relaxing from what turned out to be the last day in the office, and I noticed a couple of police officers approach the front door. I thought they were interested about that abandoned truck out front, so I stepped out there, and they slapped a pair of handcuffs on me, friends and neighbors. This was a most Kafka-esque moment. I was really confused. My mind went back to the place where it would frequently go in the past when I got into trouble. Okay, what have they gotten me for this time? But, you know, I'm not the hellraiser I was 25 years ago. In fact, I'm pretty boring. 
So I was really confused as to why these cops were, you know, putting cuffs on me and reading me my rights. Finally, through the fog of fear and loathing, I heard one of the cops yammering about being a felon attempting to gain possession of a firearm. Okay, well, that actually provided some clarity. You see, friends and neighbors, back in 2002, I was arrested in Texas for felony cannabis possession. Now, that might seem quaint now, but it was a big deal then. This is Texas. They'd probably bust you on a felony weed wrap just for cranking a Cheech and Chong CD. Now, these days, I could take a five-minute walk down the street and buy the exact same stuff I got busted with, completely legal, right here in Oregon. However, in 2002, Texas, I had screwed up big time. I'm not going to diminish that. I was staring at a second-degree felony wrap. However, from the butt-clinching moment I first saw those red lights in my rear view, I cooperated every way I could. I answered every question, truthfully and politely, filled out every form, attended every meeting, paid every fine, and believe me, there are a lot of those, served every one of 800 hours of community service. I screwed up, but I paid my dues. Now, there's this deal that my attorney swung. It was called deferred adjudication. Basically, I went into court and pled guilty to the second-degree felony charge, but the court wasn't going to act on that plea until after the probation. I completed it successfully, hell, completed it early, and the case was dismissed. No guilty plea, no felony, no criminal record. As it turns out, friends and neighbors, the Texas Department of Public Safety duly recorded my guilty plea, but it seems they kind of overlooked the part where the entire case was dismissed at the end. About Bahar for Texas, which is one of those places that seems to me to be more interested in doling out punishment than real justice. Some pencil pusher in Austin didn't do their job, but I'm the one that ends up standing in handcuffs on the front porch with a whole damn neighborhood watching, with a hysterical wife coming through files trying to provide some evidence that I'm not a felon. Now, after an hour's worth of bad noise, the cops uncuffed me and split, but not before citing me with a couple of Class A misdemeanors. So that was how the weekend kicked off for me back there at the end of March, but wait, there was more to come. The very next day, my wife and I both developed cold symptoms. At first, we tried to write off the sneezing and running nose as allergy-related, but soon we had to admit these were cold symptoms, or COVID-19 symptoms. We spent the rest of the weekend asking each other how we felt every 10 minutes, and then taking our temperatures pretty much every hour. Then, on Monday, my dear wife had a serious allergy attack, and I had to rush her to the emergency room. Now, this was something I'd been worried about the whole time, because she's got asthma and allergy issues, you know, total high risk for COVID-19. So when we got to the ER, I wasn't even allowed inside with her. I sat in the emergency room parking lot wondering when, or even if, I would see her again, or how long it would be before I made my own trip to the ER, since my cold symptoms were getting worse. And as I sat there in the ER parking lot, cold calling lawyers and wondering if my wife and I were about to take the big dirt nap, that was when I knew I had the fear. The question is, what was I going to do about it?
friends and neighbors, it seems like we are all being taken over by the fear. Like I said, the question is, how are we going to respond? The way I see it, we can go one of two ways here. On one hand, we can continue to stoke the anger and divisiveness that have been the hallmark of this country's discourse for at least the last three and a half years. I see my fellow American knuckleheads responding to their fear by acting out worse than ever. Now, the thing that really ganks my change are these protests against social distancing stay-at-home orders. They're infuriating to contemplate. Blatant disregard for common-sense scientific advice and the well-being of others is difficult for me to watch. And even worse for me, whenever I see this stuff, there's a nasty little voice in the back of my head that says to these protesters, Go ahead. Act like a dumbass. Don't wear a face mask. Don't practice social distancing. Go ahead. Just get sick and fucking die. And it's one less dumbass in the world right now and one less Trump voter in November. Now, I have these thoughts, friends and neighbors, and I am ashamed of them. Now, it's easy enough to blame Trump and the overall deterioration of political discourse, but that would be a cop-out. You know what I mean? I should be better than that. I should know better. And also, one of the few tiny nuggets of wisdom I have acquired over the years, that there are very few events over which I have any control. The only thing I can hope to control is the way I react to events. And then I need to remind myself that these protesters obnoxious and ignorant as they seem, are only reacting in their own way to the fear. I was trying to figure out how I could discuss this topic without having to bring up Donald Trump, but it's really nearly impossible under the circumstances. I'll do my best to avoid going down the rabbit hole of anti-Trump fulmination, though. Regardless, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we have never in our country's history been saddled with a leader who is so signally incapable of dealing with a situation as serious as the one we are facing today. This is a global emergency, a science-based problem, and it will not be solved with the typical Trumpian tools of bullying, bribery, or bullshit. Enough said, friends and neighbors. I'm sure it'll be easy enough to see how things could degenerate even further with the fear, ignorance, greed, hypocrisy, opportunism, and general grief peddled by Trump and his chumps. But there is a flip side. Frightening as though it may be, it is pretty obvious that we are in the midst of incredible change. We can, right now, as a nation and as a species, use this current crisis as a springboard for some serious and positive change in how we conduct ourselves as Americans and as inhabitants of planet Earth. Friends and neighbors, I feel that right at this moment we are poised on a sharp peak that the United States could fall one way or the other. We could very easily continue with the trend of the last three and a half years and continue to devolve. We can continue to grow more divided, grow more angry at one another over superficial differences, grow less prosperous and less advanced. Unless you've been asleep for the last couple of years, you know exactly about what I'm talking about. Now, there are a lot of problems I've been podcasting and otherwise griping about for years, but right now we need to find the collective will and strength to correct. I'm trying to approach this whole COVID-19 crisis as a glass-half-full situation. Now, for starters, it should be apparent that our current employer-based form of healthcare is just plain sick. Given the unprecedented wealth and technological capacity of this country, there's no good reason why we can't provide good, cheapest free healthcare to every single citizen of the United States of America. Our current healthcare system is a global joke with unparalleled high costs and unexcusable poor outcomes. 
We cannot continue to treat healthcare as a profit center. It needs to be thought of as an investment. We need to invest to keep Americans healthy so they can be productive and pull us out of the economic mess we're in as soon as possible. If that means higher taxes on the well-off, then so be it. I'm a very fortunate person. I've got a decent income, at least for now. Personally, I don't mind paying higher taxes to fund a more comprehensive and efficient healthcare system for my fellow American knuckleheads. And if something happens and I'm no longer having that great income, I'd like to know that I'll have my basic health needs taken care of without winding up broke or on the street. A common refrain from the Woofers is the government has no business providing health care. I vehemently disagree. The preamble to the United States Constitution says, in part, that the whole point of our government is to provide for the general welfare of its citizens. Now, if that doesn't mean keeping them healthy, then I don't know what does. Of course, the word welfare alone is enough to drive some woofers into a mouth-foaming frenzy. The underlying philosophy of the small government types is, I don't want to share. Now, I gotta wonder how many of these folks actually turned around and sent back their stimulus money when they received it. Probably not a lot. But I digress. Bottom line, we need to massively up our game in how we take care of our fellow Americans' health. If that means some rich people don't get richer fast enough to suit them, then I think the rest of us can live with that. Now that brings me to my next point. Maybe it's time to rethink our attitudes towards wealth and celebrity in general. I suspect that some of our dog-like obeisance to the rich and famous is why we ended up with Trump as president in the first place. I think it's been fairly clearly illustrated that the qualities necessary for becoming rich and famous, like greed, narcissism, ruthlessness, are not necessarily compatible with the qualities we would look for in a real leader. Intelligence, honesty, and compassion. So at this point in the game, I don't really give a monkeys about how much Jeff Bezos has increased his wealth or what stock prices for the Zoom company have done, or what kind of wine that Ashton Kutchner and Myla Kunis are selling from quarantine. The hell with all of them. Now, of course, the reason I know any of this stuff already is because of the toxic 24-hour news cycle that is going full blast, even more so now. Once upon a time, most of the major news outlets in the U.S., particularly TV news, were loss leaders that put journalistic integrity and honest reporting ahead of revenue. Now they too are profit centers and need to grab as many eyeballs as possible as quickly as possible. And this means sensationalism, propaganda, and overall unobjective reporting. As far as I can tell, there's really only one good solution to this. Don't watch it. Now this is particularly difficult for me because I am a news junkie, friends and neighbors, I will admit it. But when the pandemic started to really ramp up, I would get so angry or so depressed at the news that I was almost unable to function. So in response, I've developed a system for my news consumption, and it has worked out really well. It's very simple. Only two rules. First, I only read the news when I'm sitting on the toilet. Given the overall quality of American journalism, it seems like a pretty appropriate rule. Second, I don't ever check the news after 4 p.m. Period. This way, I can stay informed, stay regular, and I don't go to bed too angry to sleep. Above all, friends and neighbors, above all, I think it is time we reevaluate our attitudes about how wealth is distributed in this country and how we treat people who don't happen to have very much of it. I'm talking about the poor, the elderly, the homeless, people with low-paying jobs, 
and a lot of circumstances we are depending on a lot of these folks to help keep us alive in these times. For example, I got to give a lot of major props to my stepson, Alex, who's been busting heavies at a grocery store in downtown Portland throughout the pandemic. Fortunately, he's got a union. They've got fairly decent wages and health care bennies from the Kroger Corporation. But that was only came after a long and ugly fight. A lot of other people around the country in similar jobs aren't so fortunate. I don't think that a $15 minimum wage for a company like McDonald's is too much of a stretch. Now dig this, the CEO of Mickey D's earns nearly 2,000 times as much as the average burger flipper. I can't see what would be wrong with dialing that back to just eh, 1,000 times of the average burger flipper and give the restaurant employees a livable wage. Now this argument is like, well, they'll all be higher consumer prices, but consider this. In Denmark, the starting pay for a McDonald's employee is $22 an hour. They get hella bennies, and the cost of a Big Mac is only 27 cents more than it is in the U.S. That doesn't seem like too bad of a trade-off. Now, when we're talking about underpaid and underappreciated workers, might as well talk about teachers. I think a lot of parents have a much greater appreciation for what teachers do and how hard it is. Let's start paying these folks what they're really worth, and in the process, let's get of the ridiculous union rules that make it so hard to unload crummy teachers. As with healthcare, spending on education is an investment that we'd be foolish not to make. Now, overall, I hope that once the dust settles and we start rebuilding the economy, we can rebuild it to be a hell of a lot more equitable than it is now. The stuff that we really need to pay for, healthcare, education, infrastructure, all need much better funding. And friends and neighbors, that money is pretty much going to have to come out of the pockets of the well-off. You know, our tax system is unfairly rigged to benefit the uber-wealthy, and it needs to change. Now, dig this. You've probably heard it. In 2018 tax year, Amazon, their income was $11.2 billion. Dig it. That's billion with a B. You know how much they paid in taxes? Zero. Not one cent of taxes paid on $11.2 billion in income. Now, they actually had to cough up a few bucks in 2019, but only at a rate of 1.2%. Just for comparison, the lowest personal income tax bracket in the U.S. is 10%. So dig it. Amazon's tax rate is only one-eighth of what the poorest American knucklehead pays. That's just not right. We need real tax reform, and that means the rich are going to have to pay some more. I said it earlier, if that ends up including me, so be it. The older I get, the more I find myself attracted to the Epictetus dictum that true wealth consists not of having many possessions, but having few wants. Now, while we're talking about reform, let's get a little electoral reform going, huh? This has already gained a bit of traction as we're having a long overdue conversation about voting by mail. Of course, the woofers hate the idea because they know that their continued death grip on power depends on limiting people's access to voting. Consequently, there's going to be a number of easily undermined arguments about voter fraud and so forth. But these arguments never hold water. Now, here in Oregon, we've been voting by mail for two decades, and we have one of the highest voter turnout rates in the nation. And as for fraud, there is no indication of any widespread voter fraud in our vote-by-mail system. Now, I also got to point out that mail-in ballots can't be hacked. Now, maybe that's another reason the woofers hate the idea. Now, I got to put in a plug here for the Alliance Party, a new centrist political party that supports electoral reform 
tax reform, and many of the other important things that I blather on about. For more information, why don't you just go right to the website, www.theallianceparty.com. Friends and neighbors, I could go on and on, and some might say that I already have. We are living in fearful times, but we should not let the fear get the best of us. Instead, let's use it as a motivator to really take a look at some of the problems in our country that have brought us to this point and see what we can do so they are addressed so all American knuckleheads get a fair shake, decent education, decent health care, and an occasional box of Tic Tacs. Thanks to all of you who have stuck with me to this point. Special shout out to my loyal listener, Donnie T. in Virginia. Thanks for your support, brother. I might or might not be back sooner or later with another podcast or just a written blog entry. In the meantime, friends and neighbors, don't let the fear take you over and make you forget that we are all American knuckleheads. Y'all be good to each other out there because now, more than ever, we're all in this together. Ha, 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 ha.